Last night, James uh, talked about the power and the possibility of cultivating our sincere intention, you know, to, to live in a contented, happy way. Seems a little loud. Is that better now? Not quite so echoey, yeah. You know, and we come really to practice, I would imagine, most of us with the intention to cultivate the wholesome, really delighting in the wholesome. Why else would we do this? And yet, with our sincerest intentions, wholeheartedly, it's so common, isn't it, that we still find ourselves living in confusion, dissatisfaction, with anger, discontented. So, what's going on in an hour or less? This is a a sutta from the Buddha that I've recently been reading and really liking. He's describing here, somewhat poetically, his own experience of dismay at seeing how humans are living. He says, just look at how people quarrel and fight. Let me tell you now of the kind of dismay and terror that I have felt. Seeing people struggling like fish, writhing in shallow water, in competition against one another, I became afraid. At one time, I had wanted to find some place where I could take shelter, but I never saw any such place. There is nothing in this world that is solid at base, and not a part of this world that is changeless. I have seen people trapped in mutual competition, and that is why I had felt so discontent. But then I noticed something buried deep in their hearts. I could just make it out. It's a dart. It is a dart, an arrow, that makes its victims run all over the place. He's referring to the running after sensual pleasure, the running after happiness. But once that dart has been pulled out, all that running is finished. And so is the exhaustion that comes with it. I really like that. First, because I get a sense somehow of him as the person just really feeling this dismay at looking at all of us. I say us, we weren't around 2,500, 2,600 years ago. But it doesn't sound too different does it? And I I just like that feeling of seeing the dismay at the competition, the running around, the exhaustion that comes from that running around. And that what he points to is pulling out that dart, understanding that dart. And what he's talking about here, of course, with the dart, is our old friends of confusion of not understanding ourselves and the world as it is, as we are, of misperceiving and misconstruing what we do perceive. And those that misperceiving and misconstruing is strengthened by greed and hatred, anger, wanting. And so he's really pointing. He comes, you know, the Buddha was part of the warrior caste 
brought up as a warrior and a king. And so a lot of his images are warlike images. But also, if you read the suttas, the Buddhist time, there was a lot of war, a lot of violence in the world. As today, there's a lot of war, a lot of violence in the world. Not only that, of course, there's great beauty and love and compassion, but also difficulty. And what he's pointing to, though, is that the place to look to free ourselves from conflict, the way that we can bring freedom from conflict into the world is by looking inside, looking into this arrow, this dart in our own hearts. Maha Gosananda, who is a Cambodian monk, he's a peace activist, sort of the spiritual leader of the Cambodian people, said once he was at a a rally in Washington, D.C., I heard this, um, for banning landmines. And what he said, a friend told me this, I didn't hear it directly. He got up and he said, all the landmines in the world have been planted by the landmines in our own hearts. So if we want to eradicate the landmines in the world, we must first understand, change, remove the landmines in our hearts. It's exactly the same thing that the Buddha was talking about here when he's talking about these darts, these arrows. Okay, another sutta. And I like this because this is just the question. If we're so really seriously wanting to live in freedom, why do we keep doing stupid things, basically? It's, it's put a little more elegantly than that, but that's what it boils down to. And this is Saka, who often appears in the suttas. He's the ruler of one of the heaven realms. In the Buddhist cosmology, there's many different realms of being. We humans are only one of, I don't know, 31, 32, I forget the number. We're six from the bottom, by the way. So he's Saka, the ruler of the gods, but even he, he's often coming down to the Buddha for teachings. And he says, you know, to the Buddha, basically, Dear sir, what are we chained with, even though we, humans, gods, devas, even though we think really wholeheartedly, may we live free from hostility, free from violence, free from rivalry, free from ill will, free from those who are hostile. Yet still, why do we continue to live in hostility, with violence, with rivalry, with ill will. What are we fettered by? What is chaining our hearts? And he answers, and there's many different uh, ways that he gets to the same answer in different sutras. He says that basically we're fettered by envy and stinginess is his way in here. But that's that's just the fluff that envy and stinginess is caused by, and this is interesting, caused by holding to preferences. And that holding to preferences is basically caused by craving, wanting, thirsting. You know, this one of these darts, I want what I want, that's holding to preferences. The cause of all this continuing to basically act in ways that bring us into conflict with ourselves and with others, into suffering. 
Now, I think that's a very powerful and, for many of us at times, unsettling statement that holding to preferences can ultimately bring us into acting from ill will and hostility into continuing in competition and rivalry, basically continuing our inner suffering. Because most people, I don't know about you, but mostly when I'm starting my practice, if someone said it's about coming to let go of all your preferences, I wouldn't have been lining up at the door to come, oh yeah, let me really get rid of all my preferences. But remember, he's not saying we don't have preferences, that we can't tell the difference between anything. It's that holding to it, I have to have this or else everything's not okay. I'm bad, you're bad, the world is bad, whatever. That's the cause of our suffering, that's the cause of our not perceiving ourselves and the world clearly on a very deep level. But here on retreat, really what we can practice, what we can begin to see, to learn, is in small ways how we get attached to preferences. Mostly we don't even recognize that they're preferences. We think it's true. That's how it should be. We get attached to it and then to notice the suffering inherent in that in many different ways. Because how we relate to our experience here in retreat is a microcosm, exactly, of how our hearts and minds relate in bigger circumstances in our life. There is absolutely no difference. You're not experiencing different conditioning, a different mind and heart here than the one you have when you're going through your daily life. Fortunately or unfortunately, I don't know, but that's the way it is. And what I really love about the retreat format is that things that in the picture of our big life are pretty minor, right, can bring up an intensity of reaction and emotion and grief and desire in the whole show. You know, we stand back and say, wait, because I didn't get an orange at breakfast, you know, I'm a complete wreck. But it's true. But it's not about the orange. But we can explore what this holding to preferences is. But something that I think... um, for me, it's important to understand so we don't fall into judging right away. Oh, I'm so stupid, or whatever. Is that even our misunderstandings, the desire, the hatred, the holding to preferences, whatever, is really arising, I think, from our deep yearning for freedom, for peace, for real happiness. In some way, and the Buddha in another place spoke about this, all the stupid things we do in some way come out of uh, a perhaps unconscious or misguided sense that this is going to make me happy. And what we learn through mindfulness, mindfulness in itself, is the way to begin to perceive in a different way, not to change the world, but to re-understand what the possibility of living in freedom from conflict and in peace and happiness is, what peace is really about. It's really to come home to ourselves, to our truest selves. When I look at my practice, my all my life, I feel that everything I've been doing has been in a way a yearning to live at home with myself, with what is really true. 
And not knowing what that is, we keep looking in the wrong direction to passing experiences, to things, to objects, to moods, to people, to whatever. What our practice does is turn us back to look in another direction. One very common misconception that I've certainly had for years and years and years about what happiness or freedom or awakening or enlightenment is or will be is that in some way it seems naive, but if I look closely I see I keep falling into this trap that I think full enlightenment would be about everything's basically nice all the time. There's no more unpleasantness. And without getting down on yourself, just examine what images or ideas or conceptions your mind is holding about what practice or freedom is going to be like. Few of us include sickness, old age, loss, dismay, unpleasant things happening. Mostly it's, you know, our whole um, personality just gets better and better and nicer and nicer and we love everybody and everybody loves us and we're able to really affect great change in the world and basically this peace that somehow is still looking outer more than inward. Everything gets better. But if you look just very briefly, this has been instructive to me. It took me years to notice this. Look at the life, the Buddha's life, after he became the Buddha the peaceful one, the all-awakened one, no more suffering. He said over and over, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. That's all I teach. His life had plenty of difficult stuff going on. He was sick at times. He'd have headaches and backaches. Sometimes he'd tell Ananda, his attendant, you give the talk, I have to go lie down, you know, I have a headache. They didn't have Excedrin then. That's our new wonderful discovery in the last year. He actually died from eating poisoned meat. I mean, it wasn't deliberately poisoned, but he knew it was and wouldn't let anyone else eat it. He lived in a very warlike time, and there are different suttas where his clansmen on his father's and his mother's side were at war with one another over water rights. And many, many people in his clan on both sides would be killed, and he would be called in to mediate. He also had to mediate a lot within his own... um, nun and monk sangha. There's, it's, it's kind of funny if you read uh, all the suttas or the vinaya where a lot of the rules for the monks and nuns come out of because there's a lot of monks running to the Buddha and saying, well, he did this and he did that and I don't think that's really such a good thing to do, you know, or he's talking to the nuns too much or he's hanging out and socializing too much, you know. A lot of going on between the monks and each other. There's, there was a lot of competition there was actually his cousin, Devadatta, was extremely jealous of the Buddha. He was a monk, and he was often trying to split the Sangha to turn them against the Buddha. He even tried to kill the Buddha at one point by throwing a huge boulder down on him, and it just grazed his heel. But there's a lot going on. It wasn't all peaches and cream. It wasn't just floating on a cloud. His, the Buddha's two chief disciples... Um, Sariputta and Moggallana both died before the Buddha. And while he said he was the, the peaceful one, he didn't experience grief. He didn't wail and beat his breast. That's a common way they describe it. He did experience loss. There's somewhere in the suttas, and don't ask me where because I can't find it, but it's there somewhere. There's a lovely phrase 
where the Buddha describes after the death of his two disciples, it's as if the sun and the moon had fallen out of the heavens. He noticed they were gone. And Moggallana, who was, you know, considered the most uh, spiritually adept of all the Buddha's disciples, was actually murdered by a gang of bandits in his old age. So, awakening doesn't mean freedom from pain or freedom from loss or freedom from, you know, all the dukkha that goes on with living in a group, working with a group, working with people. But, how is the Buddha different from us, if he was, in that he didn't cling to preferences, that he really was able to live and move in deep harmony with things as they are. Because he understood so clearly how things are, he wouldn't get caught in this holding, in this wanting things to be different. It's not that he didn't have preferences. It's often said if he didn't have anything else he had to do, he didn't just kind of wander around. His preference was to go off in the forest and abide in the bliss of Nibbana. He could do that at will. Clearly, that was his preference. But if anybody needed anything, if anyone came calling, he would come out and be there for him, you know? And not like, oh, God, another wandering disciple wanting to plague me with questions. He would just come out and be there. Not clinging to preferences, not out of a should, but as the natural response from deep understanding of oneself and of life as it is. So how does he describe what he understood briefly? How do we remove that dart, so to speak, of confusion, of clinging, of hatred? It's really removed by clear seeing. And vipassana, you know, really means seeing clearly, seeing into Just being with things as they are. It's like so simple we can't stand it. We always want to figure it out and add something on top of it. That's why we have this practice, practice, practice. Practice just to be with things as they are. What do we begin to notice? I'm not going to go through everything the Buddha said, but just a couple. When he came out of his awakening and began to teach, the first thing that he talked to, to the five friends that he had been practicing with, as he sat down and out of all the things that he understood, the first thing he chooses to say is there is change, dissatisfaction, unreliability is a fact of life. That's the first thing he chooses to say. I think that's really interesting. I mean, it's not the only thing he chooses to say. When Buddhism gets the rap that it's really negative because it just says life is suffering, that's if you just hear this first noble truth and stop. Oh yeah, things change, it hurts us, everything's unreliable, difficult things happen, that's life. If you stop there, okay, it's a pretty downer of a message. But he's not saying it to take us down, he's saying it to free us. Because what frees us is living open-hearted, fully present in life with reality as it is. This is what frees us. 
Our meditation isn't to going to change who we are, change the facts of life, and change this whole world. What it does is free us from misconceptions and allow us to rest at ease in whatever's arising, to live wholeheartedly, open-heartedly, fully present, at peace with things as they are, and from that be able to affect change. So to really be willing to learn to open, just to stop resisting that difficult things happen, that there's an inherent unreliability to experience to things, to people, if we're looking to that for permanent happiness. And that the anguish or dissatisfaction or real suffering isn't because things change or because difficult things happen and pleasant things go away, but the suffering is because of our not understanding that and so getting caught in reaction, in wanting and in pushing away and getting caught in our reactions to what's happening. That that's the, the glitch, the little glitch, the place that we can learn to see through. So I want to talk just a little bit about that. So this aspect of things changing, unreliability. It doesn't mean that there's no pleasure in life. Of course there is. It doesn't mean that if we say having no preferences, it doesn't mean that we don't love our families, you know, that we can probably have a slightly different feeling about our own child and someone we never met that we read about. Of course we do. Of course we do. But it's knowing that you can't rely on anybody to do what you want, although God knows we try, to do what you want to make you happy or what you think will make them happy and then that'll make you happy or to always be there for you or you can't rely on anything, you can't rely on any experience to do it for us. Although in the moment, you know, it might be quite pleasant. Now what's so interesting to me when I look at my own experience, my own mind and heart. Intellectually, I don't have a big argument with that, that things change. I mean, it's not really a secret, is it? But look at when we're struggling. Just look back on your experience today, or yesterday, or in the next hour. How do we actually relate to our experiences that just to come in this little mini world of the retreat, how do we tend to evaluate ourselves to assess whether things are going well, how the meditation is going? I'm sure there's lots of different ways, but quite often I find in myself it's in terms of how much pleasantness there is and how long it lasts. And when something pleasant goes away and something difficult, it might be an unpleasant sensation or it just might be that it doesn't meet our expectations. And that's very unpleasant. We like our expectations to be met. That when that's not happening, how often the assessment, well, everything's gone wrong now. Meditation's gone to hell. I better try and get it back. How often people come and say, well, thank God the sloth and torpor's over. Now I can begin to meditate. Well, okay, the mind's not wandering so much. The breath has finally gotten nice and smooth and relaxed. Now I can really meditate. We get so uh, really fixated on what's happening 
as the way to evaluate. And when it changes, something's wrong or something's right. Finally, I got it right. If the unpleasant goes away, that's okay. That change, we don't mind, and we finally got it right. When the pleasant goes away, something we haven't gotten right. Now, to me, this gives a slight hint that there's something that doesn't quite totally get it, that everything changes, and that it's not all about being pleasant. The pleasant's going to change, and the unpleasant's going to come, and there is nothing we can do about it. What our choice is, do I want to suffer from this or not? But mostly we don't notice that that's our choice, that that's the place of awareness. So mindfulness practice, sati, the word that we translate as mindfulness, it really is closer to remembering uh, in literal translation. It's not about taking us away from this world Stopping this constant flow of experience, finding some experience that'll last, somehow managing to manipulate things so that the balance is more on the pleasant and less on the unpleasant. Sati's about allowing us to recognize, experience ourselves, the world, as it is in this moment. No exceptions, no pulling away, no clinging to live in the world more wholeheartedly, more completely than we are now. So even, it's, it's kind of paradoxical because sati's really, that's the practice of meeting each moment of experience with a really clear-eyed, open-hearted recognition of things as they are right now. And living really in fullness of presence in the world with ourselves as we are. And it's a little paradoxical because the retreat really looks like, and people often think a retreat is about escaping from the world. And the truth is, with mindfulness, we're diving more deeply into the reality of ourselves and the reality of the world than we ever do, really, unless we're really committed and have a lot of practice out in our life. Because there's a lot of ways to distract ourselves when we don't really like what's happening. Here, there's not a whole lot. And we set it up deliberately. Even today, now you're not allowed to distract yourself at mealtime because now we're doing mindful eating, you know, mindful working, mindful shower, mindful going to the toilet. It's about really waking up in our life. And that's not to suffer more. That's not the point. It's interesting because paradoxically, what I'm saying is being really opening to the fact that unreliability and change is a fact of life, to open to that, to not let ourselves deny it so much. But that's not to suffer more. Paradoxically, that opening is what allows us to let go, to really, like the Buddha, live so in harmony with how things are that we're not like in this constant conflict with our experience, with what we want to happen, with not getting our preferences, that we can really live clear-eyed, kind-hearted, and engaged with ourselves and with life. So this this truth, this fact that, you know, the word dukkha is usually translated as suffering. It's more unsatisfactory, unreliable. This fact, rather than being something that's alienating, 
that's depressing. Um, it's actually something, one of many things, that unifies us as human beings. It's one of the threads of our common experience. So also is love. So also is compassion. Dukkha isn't the only thread. You know, I don't want to give that impression. But when we really look at it, I heard a talk by Ajahn Sumedho. That was quite lovely. He was describing how many of the abbots in Thailand would come in and begin a talk um, instead of saying, oh, you know, dear yogis, they say, dear brothers and sisters in old age, disease, and death. <laughs> Not as a downer, but like, doesn't it kind of level things? <laughs> it's really true, isn't it? Nobody gets away from old age, disease, and death. Well, the only way you get away from old age, of course, is disease and death come earlier. I mean, I'm not trying to be funny. It's a leveler. It's really when we look through that lens, it unifies us as human beings. And instead of getting caught in seeing our differences, whether they're cultural or economic or societal or whatever, where we can get so caught up in seeing how we're different from each other and difference often breeds fear and protection, it unifies us. It kind of, when we're seeing one another through this lens of being brothers and sisters in old age, disease, and death, if you really think about it, it just naturally elicits the heart of compassion. Compassion being that, that openness to each other, that connectedness to one another in our suffering. You know, any suffering, the suffering of disease, the suffering of rage and anger, the suffering of loss. And when I, when I look around the world, I can see how uh, a sudden natural disaster, say, will often spontaneously bring about this sense of connectedness, this sense of natural response of compassion. Just last week, we were in Durango, Colorado, which is close to New Mexico. And, you know, those, those huge fires were raging in Los Alamos. And so Durango, which is a a sort of similar climate and topography. They're saying in the papers, you know, that it was really quite possible that the same kind of conditions could easily ignite a fire and it could take over in Durango. And there was a natural, really spontaneous outpouring of compassion and support for Los Alamos. There were stations all around Durango where people could bring food and money and blankets and whatever was needed. And people were just spontaneously setting this up and collecting it and bringing it down to Los Alamos. And it's often you read about in earthquakes and floods, whether it's in Venezuela or Turkey or whatever. It elicits our connectedness for a while as human beings. It often brings out the best in us. You know, we forget, of course, you know, we go back to our lives. But that's really what I mean by this opening to our common thread of, of loss, of old age, of suffering. It brings out our natural humanity, the heart of compassion. And so, paradoxically, rather than fearing or being afraid to really open to this when we notice it, to open to change, to open to pain, the recognition of it, I mean, you don't have to like rip your heart open and go around drowning in suffering, But just here, notice, when you're in conflict, is there some way you're fighting with something unpleasant? Is there some way you're fighting with change? Rather than simply acknowledging, oh yeah, that's what's happening. Things are changing. 
Nyoshal Ken Rinpoche said once, um, whether or not you go with the flow, remember the flow always goes with you. We don't really get a choice. And again, on a personal, bringing it down to the personal level, it's really very deeply ingrained in many of us, I think, to keep looking for the thing that doesn't change, the circumstance, the situation, the person that's going to give us this sense of security, this place of rest. You know, whether it's a relationship or how we grew up or you know, our job or our house or whatever. The way you finally found the right way to sit in the hall so pain doesn't come. Whatever it is, deeply ingrained, you know. And I think that's quite just a natural, again, a natural effect of our yearning for happiness. And again, just not quite totally getting it that we can't keep trying to put our happiness to look to something for reliability that's going to change. And then not to get down on ourselves when we find ourselves doing it. So, for example, my my father, the last three or four years, has been developing Parkinson's disease. I mean, he's 83. You know, something's going to happen. I say that, right? But when it's happening, do I go home and say, well, the conditions that allowed for a healthy and young body to be here have changed, and now disease is coming. That's just, you know, the way it is. (laughs) And not really, you know. Maybe I can get there, but first I have to go through denial and impatience and this kind of an edge of panic, you know, of seeing what's going on with someone who's always been so athletic and so bright and so strong and to see how the whole mind and body can start to break down and it's so out of control. I mean, we all know it, right? But just to see how, no, this can't be happening. There must be something we can do to keep this from happening. And if we don't, we've somehow failed. It's just so interesting to me. And that when I can really see that and stop beating myself up or saying, oh, you know, whatever, and just open to, oh, yeah, things are changing. There's a sense of loss and sadness, totally normal. Both the change and the loss. It's fine to feel it all. And then what had been actually a distancing from my father as I got into my franticness and trying to change everything, again, there's connection. Connection, because one can only connect with a person as they are in the moment, not as I wish he was 10 years ago or I wish he would be tomorrow, only as he is right now. And only by accepting, this is the fact of how things are, is that connection, that open-heartedness, that flowing with life as it is, really possible. And in that, just for a moment, there's living in peace. There's living in contentment. The happiness, the contentment of the Buddha isn't about having things the way we want them or the way we think they should be, you know? It's being able to really be present and open wholeheartedly, not fighting with things as they are. That doesn't mean we can't act appropriately. Of course we can. And we can act much more appropriately when we're not fighting the facts, when we're really present. We can act from love instead of fear. 
So when we notice our response to unreliability is this frantic searching for something, you might appreciate that that comes from our deep yearning for peace, but recognize we're looking in the wrong direction. The Buddha said once that the search for a resting place is burning. Not to need a resting place is cool and peaceful. He also said, he abides in peace who does not abide anywhere. In other words, who does not grasp to any, this is where I am, this is where I'm staying, this is how it is. That's what he means by abiding. He abides in peace, just present in the moment, it changes, that's fine. Present in this moment. But the really interesting piece then of this, again, is not the difficult, the unpleasant, the change that's the point of confusion, the point where we misperceive, but where we get caught is in our reactions to difficult experience or to change. It's our reactions that blind us to peace, to the potential to peace, to our truest nature. Because it really ultimately doesn't matter what's happening. We're not here to have a certain experience. We're here to become friends, to trust in awareness itself. And awareness doesn't care how the breath is, or whether the breath is, or how much you're thinking, or whether you like what's happening, or how much your knee hurts, or how good your sitting was. Awareness can be with anything. But we tend to look past awareness and get completely involved in assessing and reacting to whatever it is that's arising. And so because we're so entranced, really, by what this knee pain means and is it going to go into the future and how was it yesterday and what can I do about it and how do I like it and what's going to happen and what is it going on for the other person and what's the best way to be mindful? We're so entranced with our reactions that half the time, frankly, I think it's more than half the time, we don't even have a clue what's really going on. We're just completely caught up in assessing and judgment and liking and disliking. And it all has to do, ultimately, with me, me, me. How does this affect me? What does this mean about me? Is this mine? Is this other person having the same experience as me? You know, it's this continual self-referencing. Look at it. If you're caught in reaction, if you're really assessing, just see if it happens much without this little core of me, 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 me. It's like so fascinating to us, but I tell you, it is so exhausting. When the Buddha talks about, you know, free from the running around and the exhaustion of it, that's the exhaustion. We can't just experience sensation in the knee. No, it's my knee, my sensation, my yesterdays, my tomorrow, my trip to the hospital, my mother, my father, my dog. It's on and on and on. And what's really happening? Oh, some twinging or some throbbing. Maybe there's a little tick, you know, in the shoulder, a little twitch. Maybe we're having a really difficult memory. You know, really unpleasant things happen. But just what's happening now, that's what's happening. Everything else is our reactions, and we're so entranced by that 
that's where we go off into worlds and worlds of thinking. That's where we don't recognize that peace, our true home, is right here, right now, no matter what's happening. It doesn't matter. If we can learn to look through the reactions and just land and rest with ease in whatever's arising. St. Augustine said once, The reason why humans behave as they do is because they are not living in their true home. Our true home. There's not much words to say about it. But on a deep level, we know when we're recognizing, when we're touching our true home. And it doesn't have anything to do with what phenomenal experience is coming and going. The Buddha. One must look for peace within oneself and not in any other place. When a person is inwardly quiet, then there is no self to be found. Inwardly quiet doesn't necessarily mean no thoughts, which is what we often think. Inwardly quiet means we're not entranced by these reactions to experience and whipping up a whole story. Just what is coming and going. What is can be thoughts as well as sensation, as well as sounds. Inwardly quiet means calm, present, non-reactive. That's our practice. One place that this habit, and it really is a habit, it's not like we're deliberately you know, trying to be stupid. It's not like we're deliberately setting out to suffer. You know, We all, I mean, everybody in the world, the Buddha said this a lot, deeply wants to be happy. But I've come to have for myself a very healthy respect for the strength of habits of reaction of heart and mind. You know how hard a really really strong habit is to break? I think our habits of reaction to experience when we're not paying attention are perhaps the deepest, most deeply rooted habits that we have because we're not even aware we're doing it a lot of the time. So just, just to mention briefly, one of the very simple but not always easy to notice dynamics, cause and effect relationships that the Buddha pointed out where we get so easily caught in reaction, we get so easily distracted from the bare experience, whatever it is, is in our habit of how the mind and heart relates to pleasant experience and unpleasant experience and neither pleasant or unpleasant or neutral experience. I mean, we don't usually think in those terms so much. You know, we know we like something or we don't like something or it hurts or it feels good. Well, that's basically pleasant and unpleasant, but within a whole range. You know, physical sensation is pleasant or unpleasant or sort of neutral. We don't even notice it. Emotions, sounds, smells, tastes, even thoughts and emotions become pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And the deep, deep habit, not only of reaction, but of assessing our whole life, is that move towards the pleasant. I mean, that seems not only a habit, but logical, doesn't it? I mean, you think, well, who wouldn't move towards the pleasant? Who wouldn't move away from the unpleasant? That's just common sense. You know, neutral. Most, a lot of people go, neutral? I don't have any neutral experience. That's our relationship to neutral. 
what? <laughs> I've never seen a neutral thought. We're just gone, you know. We need, in, in this culture, we really see, we're, this culture is so intense, everything is so fast. God forbid you should go to a movie and have one neutral second, you know. It's just got to be pounding, pounding, pounding. So here, one of the reasons a retreat can seem so uncomfortable is because we're not just letting ourselves flow with this habit of whenever it's pleasant, hold on to it. Whenever it's unpleasant, get up and leave. When it's neutral, bring in something else. You have to sit there. And if it's unpleasant, you just have to sit there with it. You know, the most you can do is shift your knee a little bit or something. If it's pleasant, you sit there, but then it goes away, and you can't go get something else pleasant. You have to notice that it went away. You can't go to the refrigerator or turn on the radio, make a phone call. If it's neutral, we tell you to keep paying attention until you finally notice something's happening. Calm, you know, is very neutral. Sometimes it takes ages to recognize that calm is present. Oh, calm. And they know, this isn't neutral. It's actually really nice. I just had to notice it first. Very deeply ingrained habit of mind. And we assess, we evaluate our whole life, often, in terms of it's good if it's pleasant, it's bad if it's unpleasant. There's a nice story in the suttas about the Buddha's attendant, Ananda, who was a very kind man. And many stories that are kind of very human are about Ananda. And he was walking past a well where there was a woman from the untouchable caste at that time in India, who, you know, someone from a different caste wasn't allowed to even take anything, any food from her or anything. And Ananda asked her to give him some water from the well. Monks were allowed to ask for water. She said, oh, no, sir, I'm untouchable, you know, you, you, I can't give you water. And he, being very kind, he said, I'm not really interested in your caste. I'm just asking for some water. So she gave him the water, and she was so touched by his kindness that she secretly followed him you know, back to where the Buddha was and waited till he wasn't around and went up to the Buddha and said, oh, please, I know he's a, your follower. Tell me where he is because I love Ananda, and I want to follow him and serve him because I love Ananda. And the Buddha who could you know, tell what was going on with people, luckily said, uh, you know, it's not Ananda you love, it's his kindness. You don't need to follow him around. Just go back into your life and do likewise, you know, spread the kindness. So that's lovely in itself, but what I like is the fact that somebody does one pleasant thing and we're ready to follow them around for the rest of our life. There's a certain lack of discrimination of what's really going on, right? And we do that. Just look and see. With the unpleasant, we can get really fixated on what's unpleasant when everything else is fine. And then the mind can, like, have you ever had, you know, like a little chipped tooth? <laughs> and every, all your other teeth are fine. You're sitting there feeling good but the tongue just can't stay away from that little chipped tooth, you know. And then the mind just doesn't say, oh, yeah, chipped tooth. I got, it gets tight. Oh, no, I have to go to the dentist. Oh, no, I can't afford it. Oh, this is ridiculous. I just went last week. And pretty soon, you're into everything that's wrong with your whole life just from rubbing the tongue on this little unpleasant sensation. We can get completely fixated on the unpleasant. That's caught in reactions. The neutral, as I said, zone out, space out, make something else happen. 
it's really interesting. Very often, especially in a long retreat, I, I teach three-month retreat every year, people will come in you know, after a few weeks and say, you know, I've noticed that things have really been pretty calm and neutral, and my mind doesn't like it. It sits there and makes up really difficult suffering scenarios and gets caught in them rather than resting in calmness. And it's like, it's really amazing to see. So the Buddha described this way we react to experience, really the going after pleasant, that's craving, desire. The reaction to the unpleasant, that's the second root of hatred, fear, aversion. The totally missing the neutral, that's what leads to confusion, delusion, misperception. He talked about it in terms, again, arrow uh, of warlike image, but it's very to the point I like it. He describes, what's the difference between a completely awakened, free person and us ordinary worldlings? Worldlings, I have trouble saying that. And he said, this is the difference. An ordinary worldling experiences a painful, unpleasant sensation, say a physical sensation, it hurts. And when he experiences that sensation, he grieves, he laments, he beats his breast, he gets caught in judgment, he carries on a whole hoo-ha. And so it's as if being shot with an arrow, he then shoots himself with another arrow as a way of relating to that first arrow. And an awakened being experiences a really difficult, unpleasant sensation or emotion or whatever, and that's just what they experience. They don't add anything extra on top of it. So just noticing that through the day, how much of our real conflict and suffering is from the first arrow, just an arising unpleasant experience, and how much is because we're blaming ourselves or wanting it different or blaming someone else or trying to manipulate or wanting to know what it means or trying to understand it or all the different ways that we shoot ourselves with that second dart. Nisargadatta Maharaj said once, we miss the real by lack of attention. And we create the unreal by excess of imagination. I love that. Just take a look. How much are we missing the real by lack of attention and creating the unreal by excess of imagination? Just if you can remember that, explore over the next days. And of all the darts that we shoot ourselves with, the second dart, the biggest one, the strongest, uh, the strongest confusion, the one that's really at the root of all of it, is this dart of me, me, me. I, I, I. The Buddha again. With what manner of insight does a person become calm, cool, and no longer grasping at experience? He accomplishes this, replied the Buddha, by seeing through the root obstacle, the root delusion, the thought of I am. Just seeing through it. By being mindful all the time. He trains himself to let go of, not get caught in attachment to all the preferences, all the desires. They can still come. 
but not getting so entranced by this constant self-referencing of me, me, me. The thoughts can still be there. How does this affect me? Just let them be there. We don't have to build a whole world around it. And that's what our mindfulness practice is really a practice in doing. It's as if, one of my teachers said, mindfulness is like a rattle. It's as if we're two-year-olds. And really our mind, if you look at it, two-year-olds sort of like a compliment, actually, half the time. It's as if it's a two-year-old running all over. I want this, I don't want that. No, 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 you know. And mindfulness is like the rattle. You shake it and go, okay, pay attention over here for a minute. Pay attention over here for a minute. Just feel the sensation. Just notice the thought. Just notice the emotion. What's actually happening here? That's what mindfulness is about. That by landing in the present moment with kindness, with honesty, we can re-recognize, remember our innate composure, our natural ease, our really natural peace. Not about changing experience, but that finding that even in the midst of what we like and don't like, when we're not so entranced by reactions, we can rest in the peace of things as they are, looking through the reaction to what is true. An experiential example from that famous Dharma teacher, Phil Jackson. Little by little, with regular practice, you start to discriminate raw sensory events from your reactions to them. Eventually, you can begin to experience a point of stillness within. As the stillness becomes more stable, you tend to identify less with fleeting thoughts and feelings, such as fear, anger, pain, wanting, and you experience more inner harmony regardless of changing circumstances. For me, Meditation is a tool that allows me to stay calm and centered, well, most of the time, during the stressful highs and lows of basketball and life outside the arena. So learning to discriminate raw sensory events from our reactions to them. And even the reactions are simply raw sensory events. They're just different events from what elicits them. They're nothing to hate just the next thing to notice. And so this brings us not into another place, another way away from life, but an intimacy, a closeness, meeting our life with clear-eyed, kind-hearted honesty, not with harshness, respecting whatever arises, because in this moment, whatever arises is our avenue to recognize truth. The Dalai Lama said, why do we endeavor to discover the present moment? Because it is the only place that we can know love. Whatever's happening in the present moment, as soon as we want it different, we've missed the whole possibility of natural peace, of our natural great mind and heart. I just want to close with a poem that sort of expresses this sense You might be quite familiar with it from Wendell Berry. When despair for the world grows in me 
and I awake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be. I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. That is actually always available to us, to rest in the grace of the world and be free. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for your kind attention. So again, there's half an hour walking meditation, then our last sitting together with some chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.